0: Welcome to New Books and Literary Studies. I am your host, John Yargo. Today we, we are discussing the question, what is unfeeling? According to our guest, Zion Yao, unfeeling includes, quote, a broad range of effective modes, including withholding, disregard, growing a thick skin, refusing to care, opacity, numbness, disassociation, inscrutability, frigidity, insensibility, obcuracy, flatness, insensitivity, disinterest, coldness, heartlessness, fatigue, desensitization and emotional unavailability." End quote. In short, Zine argues in a new book from Duke University Press titled Disaffected: The Cultural Politics of Unfeeling in 19th Century America, quote, "people who are disaffected break from affectability and present themselves as unaffected." End quote. Zine is a lecturer of English before 1900 at University College London and is a BBC Radio 3 AHRC New Generation thinker and the co host of the PhDBIS podcast, which focuses on social justice and academia across the STEM humanities divide. Disaffected is an urgent book that examines how sentimentality was and is a part of the political architecture of white supremacy and governmentality, and the forms of unfeeling that writers of color used and continue to use to royal that architecture. I am excited to welcome Zanyao to the podcast.
1: Thank you for having me, John, and what a fantastic introduction.
0: <laughs> I want to talk a bit about how Disaffected developed. In my research I found two things that really stood out about the way you've talked about this project. One is that you felt emboldened by being told that a dissertation is not a draft of a book but notes toward a book. How did that open up the project for you? What are your writing and revision strategies and approaches to style?
1: Yeah, so that was some of the best advice that I got which is an advice that was I think sort of refusing The sort of demands that you have as an early career scholar, as someone who's in this incredible state of precarity, to immediately convert your dissertation into a book, and I felt this overwhelming anxiety um, that, again, my dissertation, despite all the effort I put into it, did not feel like a draft, but as my friends suggested, it was more notes towards a book. And for me, it was really important to, as a way of shifting my thinking in terms of also a loyalty to what I'd written for my dissertation, and also the sort of disciplinarity and affiliation I was performing, that part of what I think is important about what I did with my book is that I'm someone who's located um, as a 19th century Americanist, and yet For me, it's also a book that's trying to be disloyal to 19th century uh, American literary studies as much as it is a response to it. And part of how I do that is by really centering it by thinking about um, Black studies, Indigenous studies, and Asian diasporic studies, among others, um, as my primary methodology, as opposed to simply approaching through my archive primarily. And so for me, it goes like about... Post-PhD, having sort of active epistemic disloyalty while still being attentive to the discipline and like the forms of citation, which of course are important, but also not being beholden to the conversations which in 19th century American literary studies very much come out of the sort of bind about whether or not sympathy and sentimentality is compromised and to what extent it does political work, which really goes back to the discussions between Anne Douglas and Jane Tompkins in the 70s and 80s. Um, And I guess part of it also plays into that quotation that you gave at the very beginning, where I give this whole like laundry list of, again, effective performances and modes that I talk about, that I like to joke that when I read from that, I say like now during uh, the pandemic, I'd also add burnout is perhaps the very final one. Um, And this book also comes out of this difficult transition moment post PhD for me, but also that was during the pandemic time that at a very moment where all the sort of advice that you get, and I give as quotation marks um, as a junior scholar, even more so than ever feels unsustainable. Um, And that part of the sort of epistemic disloyalty that I'm talking about is not something that's simply like highfalutin, but also a simple sense of exhaustion and trying to, out of sheer necessity, think for myself, what do I need to prioritize to make it through? In terms of my citation, what things do, most, do I most care about in terms of my methodology, in terms of my archive, in terms of who my audiences are. And so the type of sort of burnout and unavailability and unfeeling I'm talking about is also one that very much comes out of the lived experience of precarity and coming through the pandemic and trying to do this work.
0: The other thing that resonated with me about how you talked about this book was that you organized the book unconventionally um, for an ac- academic monograph. Disaffected doesn't have a Frederick Douglass chapter, an Asian writer chapter, and on and on. This book moves more fluidly across those identarian categories. Why was that important?
1: Thank you for being so thoughtful about how I'm I'm trying to approach the structure. And indeed, it was sort of a, a problem for me that I was trying to interrogate. As we sort of look the way that these sort of axes of race and gender are not simply like separate, but deeply imbricated with each other. Indeed, that's why I use terms like racialized gender, because of course, they're not simply equivalent axes, but ones are deeply informed with each other under racial capitalism and global modernity. Like the sort of problem is like, okay, but how does this actually look in terms of how we structure a project, right? I think that we deeply understand how intersectional these issues are, but then how do you actually form your chapters? And so... There is a tendency that I think comes out of the very difficulty of structuring this, where people do tend to make chapters in a way that are identi- identitarian, like this is the chapter about X, this is the chapter about X. And indeed, mine falls into that. But but what I also tried to do in my introduction, especially to set up the way that these co- chapters should be in conversation with each other, the way that one modifies the other. And so what I do say is that some of how I structure my chapters is on one hand, a historical arc going from like the mid um 19th century through to the turn of the early 20th, but also the way that it's supposed to be deeply in conversation with each other that I end with a chapter on, um, Chinese migrants and thinking about the work of Susan and as the first Asian diasporic woman writer in North America. But in order to get to that point, we have to think about how this particular form of Asiatic unfeeling, this Oriental scrutability can only be understood with the prior understanding of how unfeeling has been racialized for black and indigenous subjects, for instance. And so I think that it's something that arises out of thinking of, um, about these things in deep tension with each other, as well as thinking about forms of like bourgeois professional whiteness that I think about with like, Queer frigidity for white women doctors, for instance. And so I try to at least spell out like a methodology for thinking these things together. All at the same time, I think that we know that the way that books tend to be consumed is that people read the introduction and then usually have a sense of which chapters you want to read and you read which um, in in whichever order which and in, in relation to which um, archives and issues interest you. But I do hope that in my introduction I sort of spell out why did I try to structure these things? to be in conversation with each other and what they are about, but also like how each of those chapters is trying to inform one another, but also the deficiencies of each other. So for instance, my first two chapters are thinking about different forms of unsympathetic blackness, but also talking about the omission of black women's representation agency and those picker archives that then my fourth chapter picks up on. And so I think there's also an issue that in my work that I'm trying to deal with that I think we as conscientious scholars try to address that, you know, you can't follow, do all things at all times, but how do you also deal with like absences and omissions? But, and I think my chapters are also trying to speak to each other that an absence in one chapter has a different chapter that's trying to also speak to that silence in a way that's also makes it a conversation
0: yeah and, and i've just read the book so um I, I would also recommend anyone who reads this book really needs to read it um altogether because the the first chapter which is on melville's benito sereno is a lovely springboard into the chapter on um delaney at delaney's blake so they i really got the sense that they um that that um dynamic that you were striving for really came through in the book um, let's turn to the argument of disaffected. I began with a list of the forms that unfeeling takes from obduracy to flatness to numbness. What unites those behaviors or affects?
1: So I think part of what unites them is uh, first having to do with the negative that they're usually seen as forms of absence or diminished affects, uh, but also as a form of uh, defiance to sort of obligations of universal feeling generally. And so I think that there's also a real possibility that they contain in these different ways of completely alternative forms of affect as well as a refusal of a type of universal feeling and a universal sort of affect. And I think that they. All those different words are synonyms, but they're also not synonyms at the same time. And that's also something that I try to stay with because one thing that I say that I'm trying to do is sort of provincialize the sort of universalizing um, impulses behind the way that people usually talk about feeling and talk about sympathy, talk about affect. And to stay with the forms of particularization as as many different possibilities, which can be completely different Um Taxonomizations, different cultural understandings, completely different cosmologies around what feeling can mean in different contexts, as well as like the possibility of a type of, of antisocial refusal that also doesn't mean reassembling it towards an alternative.
0: One of the launching off points for this book is Harriet Beecher Stowe's Uncle Tom's Cabin um, and the way that novel mobilizes sentimentality to speak against race science and juridical white supremacy. But you point out that uh, white heteronormative sentimentality is often unreliable and counterproductive, right?
1: Yes. And I think that we're still very much in dealing with the aftermath of Uncle Tom's Cabin. That on the one hand, we're in a moment where it's very clear to us how deeply problematic, to use that sort of catch-all phrase, problematic Uncle Tom's Cabin is. And yet it still governs so much of how we think activism operates. About you know, It's about li- the role of literature or aesthetic form is about feeling right, leading to the right type of politics. This is how we tend to teach often. This is also the legacy that um, U.S. cultural imperialism has overwhelmingly wrought on the world because, of course, Uncle Tom's Cabin was also such a widely translated text. It's one that's been a, such a global text that's been reimagined in so many ways. And it's also part of, again, part of that um, U.S. imperialist legacy that structures how we think about justice generally. And so I felt like it was to go back to how it is an urtext, not just for the um, U.S. cultural um. Politics, but also in its impact on the globe, I think is a really important way to engage it—not simply just to disavow as like, oh, of course that was like the bad thing, and yet we've moved on on beyond it, but to say like, no, we're going to stay with this sort of legacy, and to really unpack what it means.
0: What, what would be um, an example of uh, of a scene, perhaps in Uncle Tom's Cabin, that that um, exemplifies that politics of feeling?
1: Yeah. So one a scene that many people point to is the moment where Eliza has escaped as a fugitive from slavery and she comes to um, the house of Senator Byrd who has some anti-slavery sentiments, but is generally like upholding the fugitive slave slave act. And it's only through Eliza talking to Senator Byrd's wife around the, um, the relation about the about what it means to have, be a mother and her talking from position of being um, a black mother to a white mother also thinking about care and loss that then they're able to bridge forms the racial difference and make uh, senator Byrd realize that oh actually you know black people are human too through the through the shared experience of parenthood i have to realize that black people are human and therefore have the right type of politics and so this sort of moment of thinking across difference feeling across difference towards a politics across difference um, is meant to mimic at the level of the text what should be happening in the reader in terms of uh, a model of what uh, Stowe calls right feeling. And again, I think it's really useful because it's such a didactic moment to see, like, it sort of really lays bare the implicit project of that minoritized representation is supposed to have which continues today which is like again any representation that is minoritized or by minoritized people is presumed to have this sort of like educational project which is a didactic project which is a moral project and that is often like a mode that we tend to stay in when we're doing forms of reading or doing forms of teaching because it is one that again is this sort of a very well-established model
0: Martin Delaney is a complicated figure in the history of abolitionism and anti-racism. You talk about his disenchantment with white abolitionism after the passing of the Fugitive Slave Act and his dismissal from medical school and how that um, influenced his novel, Blake. What does he teach us about disaffection and what should we keep in mind about his shortcomings?
1: Oh, what a complicated character! I tried to do justice to him, but like, there's many things to be said about, include um, that was beyond the capacity of my chapter. Um, but in brief, like, I look at this particular disagreement that he had with Frederick Douglass um, about the role of Uncle Tom's Cabin, in particular, and I see it as like part of what led him to write uh, write Blake. And in particular, I pick up on this particular anecdote that he. But this is what I see as like his early turn to fiction, where he has this anecdote about like feeling somewhat quote unquote like that Indian in his phrase, where he gives this anecdote about the founding of America and the way that indigenous people don't get treated right by white um, white colleagues, and so he says this is very much similar to his um, position as as a black person in America, thinking about how Harriet Beecher Stowe and her sort conditional sympathy for black people and yet her support for um, the colonization society is not the sort of thing that he wants to accept. And in his novel, Blake, um, I look at the way that he sets up all those, moments and models that Harriet Beecher Stowe also uses for white sympathy and he stages them in order to ignore them and to have a protagonist, a Black protagonist that dismisses them and finds other ways of creating action and creating sympathy between Black peoples across the diaspora and also with Indigenous people. And so one particular scene I look at, for instance, is on uh, board the slave ship where he, he decides to look on without any emotion rather than looking from sympathy from white enslavers, for instance. So a little moment where he decides to not ask for sympathy, but to turn away. Instead, actually looking at other forms of organizing once he arrives in Cuba, working with, um, with Black people there. But again, he is a deeply troubling figure. And one way that I look uh, at it has to do with how he negotiates gender that many people, um, Paul Gilroy, uh, Robert Levine, other critics have served, and also most famously, and perhaps most importantly, Anna J. Cooper, who was one of his contemporaries, and one of the first black women to complete a PhD, made the point that uh, Martin Delaney's idea of uh, black activism was very much a patriarchal one. And so that's something that I explore that like in his uh, novel, his portrayal of Black women is hardly flattering and he sees them as very much subordinate to Black men. And also of course, Indigenous women um, are basically only there um, through their absence as well. And so that's only one particular way that his imagination as liberatory as it might seem is very much uh, limited at the time.
0: From your book, I learned about Rebecca Lee Davis Crumpler and Rebecca J. Cole. They were among a group of black practicing physicians that was relatively small in the 1890s, about 100 women in the United States, but deeply influential. One of the interesting cruxes in Crumpler's of medical discourses and Cole's thesis, which was titled, The Eye and Its Appendages, you explore is between what you call the pathologization of professional frigidity on the one hand, and the dispassionate objectivity of the formal structures of medical science and the passionless composure these doctors needed to succeed in hostile institutional environments. How did uh, Crumpler and Cole make sense of these competing effective demands?
1: So this is one of the chapters that did not exist in my dissertation. And so, but it was one that I felt was very much needed that I felt it wasn't enough to to simply like critique Delaney or to critique um, Melville for the absence of black women or to try and like read against the grain of their writing. I also felt it was very important to have the writing of Black women in the 19th century um, in their own words, and to also take them as theorists in their own right of what would now be called perhaps like feminist epistemologies of science or like the Black feminist epistemologies of science. And so that's one reason why I look at both of them. And in particular, I'm attending to I'm trying to also join the work of Black feminist historians in the way that it's, it's been far too easy for people to simply see Black women as simply victims of medical science in the 19th century, but to and but actually they also exist as practitioners in their own right, and so that's one way that I'm looking at at both doctors, and the sort of point I'm trying to make is that also they can't be seen as simply mere, mere derivations of of, say, sort of the experiences of of white woman doctors, which I look at in the previous chapter, this sort of queer frigidity, but actually pointing out that in the lived experience as well as in their professional training, they were actually negotiating with the way that medical science was developing objectivity at the same time as um, Black feminist historians point out, they were negotiating within their own lives a form of passionlessness as a way of distancing themselves from the way that Black women were uh, presented as... um, as overtly sexual, Uh, but at the same time, it didn't mean a form of respectability in and of itself, but a way of like carefully negotiating with the the standards around embodiment and effective expression that again, also paralleled and also, but same, uh, uh, there are no negotiations with professionalism. And so I think it's a really complicated negotiation that um, I tried to pay attention to in relation to how in our present day, uh, black women scientists um, like my PhD of co-host, um, Liz Wayne, are negotiating uh, in their fields in, in this very moment. And that this is very much like uh, an ongoing tradition of, of negotiation, intellectual and, and affective negotiation that people, uh, that Black women are experiencing and navigating.
0: Tell us more about Rebecca Lee Davis Crumpler.
1: So Rebecca Lee Davis Crumpler ha- is written what's still considered like the first uh, known Publication by a black woman doctor in this um, in the U.S. So she published it in 1883, and in it she sort of navigates talking about like black black women's and black girls' health in a way that we could see is like still. Like revolutionary today, because of course, Black women and girls' health is something that's completely is still very overlooked, and of course, uh, Black mortality rates during pregnancy um, are still disproportionately high because of the sort of legacy of like anti-Black biopolitics generally. And so, it was incredibly important that in the 19th century, she already saw and you could say diagnosed this as a, a broader biopolitical phenomenon, and so. For instance, she gave an early rebuttal to W. E. Du Bois's um, project that became the the text that's known as the Philadelphia Negro, pointing out that the way he diagnosed um, the high rates of ill health among Black Americans and saw them as uh, in, uh, as simply individual problems instead, as she pointed out, a pro- the problems with a, a deeply racist uh, medical system. And you could see that a book of medical discourses was also an, an early response to. To that as a problem and seeing it on a structural level. And I was also very lucky that um, scholar Nazira writes drew my attention to the fact that uh, she was endorsed by none other than Francis L. Watkins Harper, who's a writer that I talk about in my fourth chapter, and the sort of uh, what might seem like an unlikely archival find actually enforces the way that, uh, black woman doctors were deeply in conversation with black woman writers of the time, because there was a real sense of sisterhood and, um, activism as a collective endeavor at that time. And so I was really happy to be able to delve into how Compler does that sort of writing and thinking in a substantial way and trying to think of together like that sort of collectivity that, uh, that little chance bit of the uh, the archive exposes as, yeah, a broader way of of thinking together.
0: How do the writings of Edith Maud Eaton, whose pen name is Sui Sin Fa, fit into this cultural history? What is the argument of the article titled The Chinese Woman in America, which was originally published in 1897? And what is the woman of color feminism that it articulates?
1: So part of the reason why I read Edith Maud Eaton's work is, well, for the, first of all, like she's the first person in the archive that is like me. And it's also a way of to also explore my own situatedness as someone who works in early and 19th century American literary studies and the sort of like comparative absence of Asian diasporic presences, because of course temporality. But then also I think it allows us perhaps to dodge thinking about like the origins of anti-Asian racism, but also the origins of a- early like Asian diasporic activism. And part of how she's usually reproached is as like a cultural ambassador, as people like to say, for Chinese people during an era, an early era of anti-Chinese sentiment that, of course, this is an era of the Chinese Exclusion Act of early US immigration based on national origin and race. And to be like, well, during a time that the Chinese were seen as other and not human, like she humanizes them is usually the way it goes. And I want to say that something is more complicated than that going on. That she is also trying to portray in her journalism and her short stories the opportunity to, the, imp- the importance of turning away from the ethnographic gaze, even if it is, it is a gaze that's made in sympathy. And so, one way I do this is by reading her um, essay the Chinese woman in America as an early piece of woman of color feminism that is not simply about her making the Chinese woman America relatable at a time when very few Chinese women were able to immigrate because they were seen as potential sex work, sex workers, which only like amplified this sort of eroticized sense of, of absence and unfeeling that is tends to be seen as Oriental inscrutability. And instead thinking about like, how might inscrutability be a necessary protection and a guise for Chinese women in America. And so while she does talk a bit about the experience of Chinese women in America, she keeps on emphasizing also the right to withdraw, the right to not expose themselves. She even says like, um, even though you may search in all earnestness to get their attention, that she may not come to you is an important point she she makes. It's not simply about her relating knowledge, but also I think trying to model uh, an epistemology of that is okay with um, absences, that's okay with silences, with withholdings, um, even though it might, say, amplify a sense of instance inscrutability. But again, I think she's really trying to emphasize that that which is eroticized, that which is fetishized, that was demonized as a particularly racialized and queer form of unfeeling is also simultaneously um, a form of a method of survival and a method of negotiation for minoritized subjects. Let's
0: turn to your conclusion. In that conclusion, you explore your personal experience with unfeeling and with the possibility of feeling otherwise together or solidarity through disaffection.
1: Yeah. So one thing I wish I had made clear, and I've been trying to sort of compensate um, by talking a lot about it, is the relationship between my epigraph for the coda and the rest of the book. So I have an epigraph from Audrey Lord's. Much cited, but perhaps too often closely read essay, The Master's Tools Will Never Dismantle the Master's House. And I'm thinking about it in relation to uh, Raymond Williams' structures of feeling. That, what if this, uh, the dominant structure of feeling is the master's house? And the way that Audre Lorde talks about being structurally outside along various axes of, of difference actually has the possibility of the variously alienated coming together for other possibilities and being other possibilities, being other houses, other ways of being together, but also different structures of feeling towards other, uh, other ways of being in the world and other worlds that have always existed, even if they have been seen as, uh, uh, as illegitimate. And I felt it was important to end with a coda that was, that sort of pulled back the veil of scholarly detachments um, and sort of exposing it, of course, as part of the ruse of our profession and to talk a bit about my own experience. This was also originally not part of my dissertation at all and indeed was a late addition to the project that I asked my, my editor Duke if it was okay if I could write. And fortunately, Courtney gave the th- thumbs up. And I wanted to just share a bit of my own vulnerability knowing that there's a way in which first books in particular – can perhaps hold the promise of of a type of academic meritocracy, meritocracy and possibility when our our profession is sort of is, is crumbling, and has been crumbling for a long time, but continues to. Um, and yeah, I feel like it's, it was just a really important way to sort of expose a little bit what my experience was in terms of writing it, but also... That, as I say I make acknowledgements, like a condition that goes too often under addressed in terms of being able to write a book is to stay alive to do it. And that in order to do it, I needed friendships with um, other scholars of color, black and indigenous and Asian scholars of color, my queer friends, um, my feminist friends. In order to, to do this work, it was about my friends who sustained me, my friends who wrote, read over drafts, who gave me feedback, but also people who were just there for me. And so that's what that coda is there for, um, to some extent. I think it's also about like showing in a very real way that I think so so many of us making it through academia at this point rely on these informal networks, but are ones that too often go unspoken. And one I think we need to make visible because... The way that precarity is only continuing to worsen, I think often can force us into these really neoliberal individualist mindsets in terms of like who can succeed in a program, who gets the funding, who gets the job. But the reality is that we, we need each other. We need collectivity. We need to unionize. We need to organize. Um, and that's a part of what I hope to address in my CODA.
0: I think speaking to that, you're very active in public humanities, and in the sort of community forming that podcasting can uh, facilitate. Um, what's your experience that, with that? Um, what would you, what advice would you give to prospective podcasters or people who work in public humanities?
1: Uh, thank you. So as uh, John mentioned in my intro, I'm one of the co-hosts of PhD of his podcast, which I've been doing with Liz since we were PhD students. Um, I think for me, the importance of public humanities has not just simply about being speaking to audiences, but also speaking to each other and to myself and to affirm that my voice matters. We never knew if people would listen to us, um, but we had to sort of decide to to speak to each other and to listen to each other and to listen to ourselves um, nonetheless. And I think that when Liz and I first were recording, we kept on feeling that the other person was was far more eloquent and the, the better speaker. And it was also about the painful experience of literally listening to your own voice. Um, and I think on the most basic level, doing podcasting means being comfortable in your own voice, whatever that means, in terms of, you know, quote, unquote, sense of your persona, authenticity, um, the aesthetics of it, and just being okay with yourself. And so I can't say it has to do anything with like, fame, fortune, or anything like that. Um, but for us has just been a necessary way of speaking to each other and thinking about who we want to be in literal conversation with. And in my case has been about, and for us has been about curating who we see ourselves in conversation with and just continuing to build it across disciplines. And I think it's about trying to listen to people from within your discipline, but also from many other disciplines and trying to meet them where they are to understand how knowledge works, how Hiring works, how labor works, and how their research works as well.
0: Did Did I pick up on the suggestion that um, perhaps working with Liz Wayne on that podcast um, helped influence your decision to write the fourth chapter?
1: Yes, and so it was funny that um, Liz was even my companion when I was doing one of my archival trips to to Philadelphia to some of the archives there. Like Liz actually did her um, undergrad at UPenn and so she was I think also like visiting the campus but then I was also there at the Mütter Museum and looking at other archives um, in Philadelphia and sort of having this interesting experience of me like look, looking at history of medicine and Liz is a, a, a biomedical um, engineer and scientist who works on cancer and so we end up having a lot of these conversations across a difference and even one of our most recent conversations that I we have on our podcast from last year is like me like explaining biopolitics to Liz and she found it really useful also for her teaching when she teaches like thinking about cancer, thinking about um, immunotherapy and thinking about as part of this larger schemes of thinking about it beyond simply the individual treatment, but in terms of like actual uh, modes of politics, modes of being.
0: Yeah. That's such a wonderful crystallization of that, that sort of community formation that you were, you were discussing Um, I know this book is fresh off the press, but have you given thought to what your next project might be?
1: Um, So I think one of my next projects that has been sitting for uh, a while in my thought processes, although I haven't had time to work on it, is trying to think about sex work um, in terms of affect and thinking about how there's been such an amazing explosion of sex work activism by former and current sex workers Um, but what can I do from an archival perspective? I wouldn't want to appropriate, um, or impose myself obviously on terms of the work that's happening now, but also like what might the 19th century archive and earlier archives have to contribute, um, beyond simply thinking about sex work as metaphor, but also thinking about it in and of itself as an important form of theory in the flesh and a way of theorizing, um, affective and embodiment and racialization in earlier moments, but the thing is, like, I've been holding on to this idea for a while, but not working on it because, well, first I've been really busy, but also I think it's one that requires a lot of care to do as someone who is not a sex worker themselves. Um, and so I'm really trying to think through the ethics ethics of it and methodology of it. Um, yeah, so it will be something that I, I'm, I'm trying to think through, but in a way that is not going to be hasty. <laughs>
0: We'll keep our eyes out. And in the meantime, we'll um, turn our attention to disaffected. Um, Thank you so much, Zain.
1: Thank you, John. It was an honor to speak with you.